0: All right, welcome to another episode of It's a Packed to Life podcast. I'm your host Celeste. Today is September 23rd. It's Friday, year's 2022. Wow. Um, Today's topic is going to be a little bit heavy. Sometimes we get heavy and light. What I don't have today is a co-host or someone that I'm interviewing. It's just going to be me today. And the reason behind that is there's a couple of things, but the biggest one is that October is coming up. We're like a week away now from October week in a couple of days. Right. And October, I don't know how many of you are aware of the fact that October is depression awareness month. It is mental health education month. Now, May is Mental Health Awareness Month. I know there's like a month for everything, right? But here's the thing. When you have not had representation or a lot of people that have seen or talked about the disabilities that you deal with, these months and awareness and educational things are critical. They're important. They help you realize that you are not alone in the things that you're going through and the things that you're dealing with. If you look back at major depressive disorder which would be someone who is considered to have clinical depression it's an ongoing depression it's not just situational so this we're not talking about grief around say your pet dying not and not to diminish any of those things okay But we're not talking about a situational depression where like you've gone through a move and you're handling the life changes with that, or you've gone through a divorce and you're handling the life changes with that. Now, those situational things can sometimes trigger other trauma and other situations and can lead into a major depressive disorder. And even if they don't in and of themselves, they are critical and important to be dealing with period. And that being said, I am focusing today on, yes, depression in general, but also for those of us who deal with clinical depression that shows up over and over in our lives constantly, sometimes at a specific time or season, sometimes for no reason, sometimes all of the above. For me personally, I deal with season of depression that has nothing to do with outdoor seasons. I did, when we lived in Utah, I had seasonal affective disorder because of the lack of sunshine and the high altitude and not getting outside, not getting enough vitamin D. I was always vitamin D deficient. The cold really bothered me. I didn't have my diagnosis of fibromyalgia back then. So I didn't understand that it wasn't just that my skin felt like it was on fire because I was cold. It was actually because it was triggering a fibromyalgia flare up and I didn't have tools and things necessary to help mitigate that. I would also chronically get migraines um, pretty much daily. And some of that had to do with the pollution in Utah, smells and things highly triggered that. But really, it came down to the fact that my brain is just wired to have migraines. And it took until they finally came out with these once a month injections. And I've been able to be on mine now, I think about four years, night and day difference in my ability to cope and handle life around those things. What's really hard for me now. Is let me rewind actually. So when we left Utah, I stopped having the seasonal affective disorder that would go from I would say around Thanksgiving through about March. Um, it was pretty much non-existent that first year, which was shocking to me that it went away that quickly. But then over the years, like I found like I just don't deal with that. Seasonal affective disorder in the same way I spend a lot more time outdoors because it's warmer and I don't get the fibro flares up that I used to. Again, having not known that component, education makes a lot of difference in the ways that we deal with and handle any health situation that comes our way. I go through a depressive season that begins sometime in August and runs through right around Thanksgiving. I would say it starts letting up just after Halloween usually. And there are so many reasons (laughs) for this time period being my seasonal time period. Trigger warnings. For the episode, I hope I remember to list them all. There will be talk of depression, obviously. There will be talk of death by suicide. There will also be talk of um, emotions and things around those. And also, we're going to touch on the fact that I was sexually assaulted. I'm not going to go into detail with that. There will also be discussion around growing up in a high-demand religion and abusive home. All that out of the way, if you are up for the conversation I think it's important that we have this before we move into October. I have some amazing guests coming up, people that have also had depression either touch their lives personally, as in they have dealt with it themselves, or it is something that a loved one um, of theirs has had to deal with and go through or both. Uh, I grew up... As you should know by now, according, you know, listening to the podcast, I grew up as the third of 13 children in a Utah Mormon family. We did live in New Mexico for a few years as well, but um, we were part of the Brighamite Mormons. They currently go by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Members will correct you if you call them Mormons. Um, I still call it Mormon because when I was a teenager and young adult and paying my tithing millions of dollars went into campaigning and PR money going out to campaign to showcase with, um, the women, the prophet of the Mormon church at that time, the leader was Gordon B Hinckley. And he was all about embracing the word Mormon and not allowing it to be a derogative term. So now they have a new leader with new ideas and, um, Yeah, for having grown up in a church that said they had all of God's truth, that God was always communicating to them. Had I not already left, this would be one more thing that would make me scratch my head. Um, But having left, it doesn't surprise me that they have a leader that's on his own agenda for what he thinks the religion that he has the power and authority over should do. And I get sing-songy when I'm a little uncomfortable and just want to get through information. And so that's why my voice has been this way. So we're going to move along from that. Um, I do not like Mormonism as a religion. I'm pretty sure that has come out in ways throughout the episode already, the episodes already. Um, What I do want to make clear is that I have zero issues with people who are members of the Mormon church who do not try to push their religion on other people, who do not um, try to use guilt and shame and things to make someone come back or to try to tell them that they're not good enough. Or in my case, I have had people use the fact that I have depression to make them feel better about the fact that I have left. Because obviously, since I have depression, I can't feel God, which means... I'm not thinking clearly, and that is why I have left. And it is very infantilizing. It buys into this idea that just because I have depression, I am incapable of being logical or to think for myself or to make things more clear. And I will say this right here, right now, and I will never take this back. I deal with depression, but the symptoms of my depression since having left Mormonism have greatly diminished. Because I no longer have someone else's ideas of what I should be living for, or that I'm supposed to be looking to live for this plan of happiness, or that it's my responsibility to make sure everybody else finds God. Like there's just this pressure that has just been released on all of that, where I can now look at the actual things that matter in my life in this moment with my family and myself. And not be so concerned about if I'm failing some future moment. I can focus on taking care of me in the now instead of worrying about whether or not the eternities are taken care of. I am now agnostic. I really honestly do not know or care if there is a deity or a God. I am at peace with that. I don't think it's a question that I ever would have been asking myself my whole life if I had not been told it was the question to ask. I have no problem with people who believe in God as long as they don't try to weaponize that belief and try to force others to conform to the way that they believe. I just, I'm one of those people, I think religion belongs in a person's home. If it comes out in the way that you talk to other people, um, it should be on both sides seen as something that's a pleasant exchange. And if you feel like, and I'm gonna I'm just gonna say this, if you feel like you are doing God's work and everybody around you keeps getting upset about the way you do it, you might want to take a step back and ask yourself what you're really doing because it's not love that you're sharing. And I'm just gonna leave that right there. So depression. I do not have depression because I was Mormon. I do have depression because of my DNA and coding and things. And some of that DNA gets changed when you live in an environment that has um, lower altitudes and different things. Our body, the biology of it is phenomenal. It's fantastic. It's amazing. I think that there are so many ways that our body imprints and adapts over time. They used to think that around 25, the neuroplasticity in our brain was done and that it no longer developed. They have now proven that to be untrue and that we can reprogram the way that our brain processes trauma, the way that it processes emotion and the way that we understand things and we're still in a pretty early infancy as far as the science goes behind mental health when I'm talking mental health I'm talking about the brain itself as an organ and the way that it works Uh, we forget so often because the word feelings we say feelings like I was I'm feeling depressed is often used to explain deep sadness or grief or some of those things. And we really need different words because there's something very different about feeling depressed and having depression. And it's really hard because just like many other diseases, the symptoms that show up when someone has depression are not always the same. The way that the disease looks with me is not going to be the same it looks with someone else. And on top of that, depending on what doctors you've seen, what skills you have used, maybe medications, maybe um, art therapy, maybe like there's a million different ways that you can work to process, to help reframe things and to mitigate the impact that the depression has on your life. And there are some people who have gone on to what they say is cure the depression that they have had in their lives. And I am not diminishing anyone's journey or any of those things. I would be very wary of anyone who says this one thing would cure anyone with depression because that's way too simplistic. So that being said, I am 45 years old. I was diagnosed with clinical depression or major depressive disorder. When I was 18. And um, that diagnosis has been reaffirmed many times over the years. There are other, what I call my mental health alphabets, that some of them are gone now. I no longer have a panic disorder. I still have symptoms of panic attacks from time to time that are symptoms of my anxiety. Disorder. Um, I'm not sure if it's still classified as a generalized anxiety disorder or not. Doesn't really matter. Most of most of the coding that happens through the DSM, which is the book that therapists and people use to put the work into the insurance company. It's for coding so that they can bill it properly and blah, blah, blah. Means I don't want to say very little. It's like a guidepost. But it is not what the person who has received the diagnosis should focus on. Now, I will say this, when you have been dismissed for years and years and years and told there is nothing wrong with you, when you get a diagnosis, it's affirming. And I'm not saying don't allow it to be affirming, because obviously there's something going on and you have got a diagnosis, it's affirming. What I what I think is problematic is when we latch onto that so hard that we stop looking for the adaptations and things that can come into our lives that help us handle and manage the depression in the different ways it shows up, because it's not going to show up the same way every single year, even when you have a seasonal depression like I do. So mine shows up, like I said, August goes through between Halloween and Thanksgiving is when it disappears, which is interesting. And I've always had my psychiatrist and therapist tell me it's really interesting because a lot of people start going through depression during the holidays because they put themselves under so much stress and there's a lot of family dynamics that come into that. And the holidays can become very, um, polarizing and there can be a lot of depression around that. And I get it, but that is not my time period of when I'm dealing with this depression. So, um, and explaining for, I I don't owe anyone an explanation for why this shows up in my life, but I'm going to clarify it because I do think that it's important that when we're healthy enough to have these conversations that we do so that someone else listening can go, Oh, I am not the only person who has a story like this or who handles something like this. So um, 13 kids in our family, obviously there wasn't always 13, but it was always a big family. I was always at the top end of the family. My dad was an educator in the public um, education system in the United States. Most of those years as a teacher, several of those years also as an administrator. Um, and then he went back into the classroom. So my mom, while I lived at home, this was not the case later. There were times when she did go back to work, but while I lived at home, my mother did not work outside of the home. So we had a one income family on an educator salary. And Anyone who follows the news or knows anything knows that educators in the United States do not get paid healthy living wages. Um, They usually have to take on two or three jobs just to make ends meet, especially if you have another spouse who stays home, which for my mom, financially, it made way more sense for her to stay home with all of those kids than for them to try to pay for like daycare or something for that many children. Um, that's one aspect of it, but also having growing up Mormon, the family believed in a very patriarchal system of the way the family broke down and the man went to work and provided for the family and the woman stayed home and had the babies and have as many babies as you possibly can was what they taught at that point in time. So my parents were doing God's work, having as many children as they could. I was born in 1977. (laughs) The BDS, the DSM did not put major depressive disorder into its um, manual until 1980. That's three years after I was born. And as we know, with any medical condition, regardless of whether or not it's even one that is as controversial as what we have seen around mental health, because there's so many people who do not look at it as an organ malfunction, but just an emotion malfunction. Anyway, to get back to that, like I was three when it really began to be accepted scientifically. And that is when the real deep studies and things are able to then be done and to be able to be worked on. And it's not to say that there weren't people working on these things and stuff before that. I'm not saying that in any way, shape or form, but for mainstream um, psychotherapists to have embraced it fully and it being accepted by insurance providers, it wasn't until the 1980s. When I was a teenager, Mormons were still teaching that therapy was for very limited situations. It isn't, you were not encouraged to see a therapist. You were encouraged to go and talk to your clerical leader, who was the bishop um, is what they're called, and in Mormonism, that is a layperson, which means that they have a different job. So it could be a bank manager, it could be a plumber, it could be a school teacher, it could be a fireman, it could be like any any job in the market could be what this leader of the church congregation was. And they were putting that calling for approximately five years. It's volunteer. It's voluntold, let's be honest. Nobody goes in and says, hey, I want to be the bishop. But they get called to be the bishop. They're told that that's what God needs them to do. And so they're working their regular job, plus they're trying to run the congregation. And in Utah, where I lived most of my life, those congregations were like three or 400 people. So it's not like it was a small congregation. It also wasn't, you know, one of these massive churches with one leader for like thousands of people. We did have that, but it was broken down into smaller pieces. And this is not that episode. Just suffice it to say that when I was dealing with issues and things that had come up, the people that I was told to go to, to talk these things through with, did not have any medical training and they did not have any mental health training. So um, back to my childhood. So with my dad being a teacher, think about back to school time and how stressful that is. Add into that multiple children and the fact that one of the breadwinners is also one of the people going to work and in a patriarchal society where... The mom is the one that is managing all of that. And my dad was so busy with his jobs and things. And also the way that the culture played out that he was not engaged in preparing us to go back to school. That was my mom. My mom was not healthy. And there's, I feel like I have to clarify this. Like every time I have this conversation, it gets frustrating, but at the same time, I don't want anyone thinking that I hate my mom or that I'm bitter or angry. I have anger around specific situations that happened in my life. I do think there's a lot of crap that didn't need to have happened. But I also recognize the humanity of my parents and that what they did with managing how they parented is their story and a reflection on you know them and what they were going through in the life that they lived in and is not my story. So I'm not trying to share their story or what culpability or responsibility they may or may not have had. I'm just, I need to be able to share my story, how it affected me while also stating that, yes, I loved my parents. If I did, it would, we are programmed genetically, bio everything, right? For survival to imprint on our parents. They bring us into this world and then we spend our lives being told that they're there to love and care and protect us. And so any level of that that they do reinforces both the the chemicals and the bio DNA programming in our brains. And I'm sure I am not using the right scientific terms. So don't come at me about that. I'm just trying to explain it the best I can based on the understanding that I have. And so then when a parent is abusive or neglectful, um, there's deep heartbreak that begins to happen at very young ages, but we still look to those people. And if they show up in any of those ways, like providing food, shelter, safety, any of those things at any point in time, it reinforces that connection. So add into the fact that we are very multidimensional people. Not one of us is one-dimensional. We have our lives, you know, in our work jobs, we have our lives with our families. We have our... if we're healthy, those lives bleed into each other in a way that is not surprising to anyone when they see us in any of those elements. When we're not healthy, oftentimes if someone saw behind the curtain or whatever, that they they would be surprised by. What they're seeing in one of those elements. My dad, fantastic teacher. My mom, phenomenal religious woman, great with the primary kids. She was fabulous with babies. She was a great friend. Um, she could be a fantastic nurturer. Does not mean that either of my parents were good parents. They had good parenting moments, they had shitty parenting moments. Overall, if someone said, if I am being honest with my life experience and someone says, Did you have a good mother? I would say no. Did you have a good father? I would say no. And that is not to be cruel to them, but it is because I did not feel and still to this day do not feel emotionally safe in those relationships where I can show up as myself and know that that person is going to love and respect me and not um, cause me harm. I do feel I need to protect my child when I am around my father because of the religion that he is in. My child being trans, that religion does not accept it. And my dad has never come out and told me that he sees things differently than the religion around that. And I'm not going to go chasing for that validation when it could end up being even more heartbreaking. If he wanted to step out of his comfort zone and affirm that in my child's life, I will allow him into that space, but I am not gonna go chasing into a toxic space looking for that. I hope that makes sense. Do I love my dad? Yes, I love my dad. I would love to have a closer relationship with my dad, but I do feel like I have to be really careful about the relationship that I have with him because he still gets upset when I talk about the fact that There was abuse and neglect in our home growing up, which means he has not taken responsibility for the fact that regardless of whether it was intended that way, regardless of whether he was just doing the best he could with what he had. He's not taking responsibility for the fact that as a parent, he harmed his children and that does not feel safe. Okay, so that's a (laughs) side. It's always so heavy talking about these things anyway. Oh, I have actually been in a deep depression this past week. I had a major fibromyalgia flare-up, a migraine breakthrough during the last 10 weeks before I'm allowed to do my monthly injection um, because the insurance won't cover it sooner than every 30 days. I often get breakthrough migraines that come back that show me just how deeply the pain was that I lived with before. If that happens when there's a weather change, which we've had a couple the fibromyalgia is more likely to flare up and when that happens and i'm in that much pain where it puts me in bed and there's really nothing i can do the depression winds itself up to a point where it feels like it's taking over and this is a time period when again i'm dealing with the depression anyway um it it's it started showing up mid to late august when i was a mom a young mom and we finally pinpointed that because when school was starting it was so stressful that i had this internalized anxiety around that point point in time i think i've done a lot of work around that i don't think that school starting is in and of itself the trigger at this point there may be layers of that somewhere that still show up because that's healing Um, but also during this time, my mother, so rewind when I was 13, we had just moved to a new town. That's always hard. Um, especially for a young middle school, junior high school student. Um, we were trying to sell a home back in the city where we used to live. So my mom was not there all the time. I was helping watch the kids, um, during the day because my dad was a administrator and he'd already started at the school to be prepared for the school year. And I was just, I was tired. I was worn out. And, um, on August 30th that year, my uncle Larry, who we all just loved and I loved and adored died by suicide. And he had been struggling for a while with some things. It was categorized to me as him struggling with the Mormon church. Nobody talked about the fact that he had depression or where it was coming from or any of those things. I don't know what help he did or did not receive. I don't know any of that side of the story because again, I was 13 and we didn't talk about these things. We did not talk about these things. I lost my favorite uncle. He was the one who would get out his guitar at the campfire and he would play little ditties and songs. And he and his wife always had jokes and just fun. So many fun little memories that come up with them. They were campers and hikers and he loved the outdoors and he loved going up to the needles and spending time in the Uintas and, um, I did not live close to him most of my life, but he and his wife came and visited us at least once a year, I would say, and would spend time with our family and just making sure that we felt loved and cared for by him as an uncle. He was he was a hands-on, get-down-on-the-ground-play-with-you kind of uncle. And he was gone. And people were telling me that he was going to hell. That he had made this decision to, that he was a coward, that he'd chosen the coward's way out. And none of it felt right or true to me because he had always been one of the strongest, bravest people that I knew. And I'll tell you this that after all these years now, I would agree that he's one of the strongest, bravest, most amazing men that I ever knew. To have fought the depression and the things for as long as he fought and to have won for as long as he won. He was brave and it was not a coward's way out. He died from a disease called depression. When I was 23 years old, um, 10 years later. Okay. I got to read. I got to stay back first. So my uncle committed suicide. Then my grandmother, Sometime in that same time period, my mom's mom was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and she was gone by November. I believe she died on my grandfather's birthday in November, but I am not 100% sure. Anyway, she was gone by November. We were gone many weekends. And in the middle of that time, we would come home. We were living in two apartments. My parents and the youngest kids slept in one. It was a it was a fourplex, and we were in the bottom two of the fourplex. There was no connecting door between the two. The older kids, which Mary was the oldest, sixteen, down to I know James, Cheryl, James, possibly John, were in the apartment. Which means Mark's, looks, Catherine, Cheryl, James, down to this seven below me. Anyway, fairly young, six, six, I would say. Um, we were in that apartment and we, anyway, we come home. I remember our win- Mary's in my bedroom window was open one weekend when we'd gotten home and there was like a lingering cigarette smell. And it was, just, it kind of, it just felt like someone had been in the room and we were asking each other if we'd move some stuff around and neither of us said anything. It was just one of those. I had this like icky gut feeling, but I didn't have anyone to talk to about it. So that happened a couple of different weekends. And anyway, then one weekend we were home. We hadn't gone anywhere. We hadn't gone back to Salt Lake that weekend. We were home and I was sexually assaulted through my bedroom window. Um, I woke up and scared the person off before things got too far. And I'm not going to go into any details on any of that, other than the fact that um, because the apartments were not connected, I had no way to get a hold of my parent other than to go outside. And I was way too traumatized to do that. I sat in the bathroom, like flushing the toilet, trying to wake up my dad. That did not happen. And then one of my youngest siblings that was like six knocked on the bathroom door and asked if I was okay. And all of a sudden I realized that, I had left my younger siblings out there even more unprotected and the protector in me was enough to get me up to go and ring the doorbell and knock on the door to my dad's apartment. So this, I I don't know how much time had passed, um, between the assault and when this happened. Anyway, eventually the cops were called. No one got me my glasses. And this is important because it just, I felt so out of touch with everything that was happening and so neglected in this moment of intense pain that I was going through. Nobody even took the time to realize I couldn't see. I have really bad eyesight, everything was blurry. Um and the female police officer asked 13-year-old naive me if I was sure that I had not fantasized the whole thing. I have blocked out pretty much everything else that happened that night. And I do remember that they put me in bed with my mom for the rest of the night. And then until we were able to move out of those apartments, I slept in the apartment with my mom and the younger kids and my dad slept on the couch with the other ones. Um, And not too long after that, my grandmother died from her pancreatic cancer and she was gone. We moved into another house. That was an actual house. And we were there for, I don't know, six or seven months. My dad ended up losing the job that he had out there. And we ended up leaving um, my dad's hometown, which is he had wanted to move back to where he'd grown up as a child. I bring all this up because in conversation throughout my life, anytime anyone talks about that time period, all growing up. We talked about Uncle Larry's suicide. We talked about my grandmother's death. We talked about my dad losing his job. No one talked about the fact that I had been sexually assaulted or that I had gone through this. The few times it came up at all in conversation, way back when it first happened, my parents talked about how I had woke up a burglar that was trying to break into the house. And that was the narrative. That was the story that was adopted. Whether to protect me, I'm not sure. Um, some, some other time I'll talk about the rest of the shit that happened with the police in that small town and the things that they did that were so, so, so wrong that as an adult, I'd like to go back and require them to fix and do some training around, but it's not even the same people there anymore. I get that. I understand that, but there was a lot that was done that was highly inappropriate beyond a female officer asking a 13 year old if she wasn't sure she'd fantasize a sexual assault so there's a lot of trauma that was in that time period um in going through old journals of mine as well that's also the time period when when i had moved back home between my freshman and sophomore years in college um my mom got extremely abusive with me that summer and there was a day when she had come in what well, was an evening she'd come in and woke me up in the middle of the night to yell at me for something and I was trying to keep things quiet because I shared a bedroom with one of the babies that was only like three years old and I was trying to help keep things down. That baby just slept through it. And my mom closed fist punched me in the face. And I had told myself that if she ever hit me again, I was leaving. And within two weeks, I'd moved out. I found a roommate in an apartment. I moved out. I did not leave contact information um, for my parents. I ended up only giving it to an my oldest sibling as a, hey, if there's an emergency, you're allowed to contact me, but you're not allowed to give this information to anyone else. A couple of my younger siblings had it. Uh, several months went by before I allowed my dad to contact me again and then started working to build any kind of a relationship back with my um, parents and my family again. So am um, that's the history behind this. Um, oh, and when I was when I was 23, um, my mother's other brother, Charles, who also a favorite uncle, fun goofy guy, um, had struggled with mental health stuff. We knew he'd been in and out of the hospital stuff Try, trying to get help. It was not framed in my family that he was doing something healthy which made it excessively hard Then, when I reached out and got into therapy and was getting help to ever talk about that with my parents, which even when I did, it was that blew up. So it was good that I didn't. But um, anyway, Charlie also died by suicide. Um, 10 years after his brother had died by suicide. The difference, the biggest difference between the two is that Charlie had children, whereas Larry did not. Larry's death still rippled out and affected so many people. Charlie's death devastated so many young lives um, at such a young age. And I remember sitting down with some of the older cousins and um, people and saying, "We have to. We have to talk about the mental health stuff. We have to be the chain breakers. We cannot lose any more family members." And, um, when my depression has gotten to the point and it has a few times in my life when it has gotten to the point where death has sounded like the best option, the thing that has stopped me was seeing the pain that had rippled out from those two suicides. And then as I got older, having a a friend older brother commit suicide, my senior died <laughs> having a friend's older brother die by suicide my senior year, watching the pain that rippled out from that and a few years later another good friend of mine's little brother also um, died by suicide and there's still there's still not enough conversation around these things. And everybody says, well, if we talk about it and we glorify the people that did it, then more people will commit suicide. And I call bullshit on that. I think that when we honor the strength of the people who died and show them for the warriors that they were and then say, if someone this amazing can get that low, what are we doing wrong and what do we need to fix? And I'll tell you that our mental health care system is really fucking broken. Um, I did end up in the hospital at one point after my second miscarriage. I was hospitalized. I called Corey. I said, if you don't come take me to the hospital, I'm not going to be here when you get home. Um, when we got there, I shared one of three plans that I had come up with. With my doctor to let them know that I was serious about taking my life. And it was the one that I was pretty sure would not work because I was still holding on to a way out, a potential for a way out. I wasn't sure I wanted to live. And um, I had broken my foot. I was in a boot and knee brace. Um, that I, the people, I was so dehumanized in that experience. Nobody talked to me. Nobody talked me through the process. Nobody treated me like I should have any right to know what was going on with anything. I was there for three days. And I told Corey, you get me the hell out of here. Get me the hell out of here because this place is worse than life. And if I can get out of here, I can be okay because it was just so much worse inside of the hospital. I got lucky in the sense that there was a deep reservoir that I tapped into so that when I left, I did end up finding and working towards the resources and things to be okay. But I think about that hospital stay and what what it would have been like if I had just smiled and played the game and then gone and done one of those other two things to take my life, which I held on to for years because in the back of my mind, I thought "I, I might still need this someday. And it has only been in the last year that I shared those last two plans with people that I love and told them, you know, I, I no longer need these. And that's, um, I refuse to feel weak for having held on to that though, especially this last week being in so much pain that part of me was like, could I Could this please just end? Could this just be over now? I I can't do this anymore. I'm in so much pain. And the only thing I can focus on is how much pain I'm in. And then thinking about, and this is where then my brain takes me in those moments to say, I'm not doing my family any good anyway. I'm just laying here in bed. And my teenager is better off without me. My husband thinks that he's better off with me, but give him a little time, a little grief. They'll be so much better if they don't have to deal with this all the time. And it's hard in those moments to recognize that your, your brain is lying to you. Because in that moment, I wasn't thinking about the ripple and the way that it would go out and the rejection that my family would feel or deal with, even though I also know they have compassion. They've seen how much pain I've been in. There would be a level of compassion and understanding that I have for those who die by suicide that I know they would have for me. But is that really what I want to put out into the world is more pain? Because it's not. It's not what I want to put out there. And so... It's important that we talk about this and I gave myself permission to just curl up in a ball and do what I needed to for pain management for several days. And I'm, I'm just coming out of that where I'm not in so much pain anymore that I can actually be up out of bed and, and yeah, I got my injection two days ago and it correlates a lot with that it would be really fucking awesome if we could get the insurance to cover that injection sooner than that. So I don't have these 10 days where things break through and everything just blows up, especially when I am in the season of depression that shows up every year that I'm already trying to do everything in my power to fight. And it was like, I'm doing all these self-care things but suddenly when I am stuck in bed because of pain and I can't do the little self-care things like go out and lay in my hammock or play with the dog or any, because it just, it hurts to move. It hurts to breathe. It hurts to be. Yeah. The depression's going to blow up and it's going to show up. So it's, I don't, I don't want this to be a, oh, well, fuck. That's just a horrible thing episode either. I want it to also be something where we can talk about what what matters in these moments and what are the things that we can do especially if you know someone who deals with or fights for their life with depression. And I'll tell you there's been a couple of people who just sent me a text just checking in, saying hi um letting me know they missed me at something those little things fucking matter especially when my brain is telling me that I'm unimportant and irrelevant to everyone else you get a text from someone you haven't seen for two weeks that just says hey just reached out wanted to say hi see how you're doing or oh my gosh I was watching this tiktok and I thought of you you know that you're like important in people's lives that you come across their mind and like random moments and that matters it matters so so much oh god so october's coming up it's um mental health education awareness month but the one i'm really focusing on more though is the depression awareness month and i'm going to have guests on the podcast that um have found ways to combat having had depression or having lost a family member to suicide. Um, There's ways to be extremely intentional about how we deal with the grief of having lost a loved one this way. Um, And also how important it is that we stay intentional with how we fight our own depression when that is something that we deal with. And to call people out when they try to diminish or belittle the impact that depression can have on a person. If you hear someone saying, yeah, she deals with depression and so that's probably why she blah, blah, blah. You know what? Cut them off because just because I have depression doesn't mean my brain doesn't work at all. Does it lie to me sometimes? Yes. Yes does it completely stop functioning? No, I am still capable of thinking and making decisions and doing things for myself. I have yet to get to the point where I don't make any decisions for myself. And part of that is having um, the self-care tools. It's my safety net, the things that I built, have built up and keep in place to make sure that I don't slip through the cracks. It's why I meet with my therapist. Um currently it's every other week because that's what I need right now. My husband is aware that I deal with the depression and these things. He knows that it's been really bad and he checks on me more often during the day right now. I generally have one or two friends that when I'm in this space I let them know that I'm in this space and that I need extra support. This one hit really fast and hard and I did not do that. And that's part of why it's been so hard, to be honest. Um, I turtle. Instead of like standing around my house and allowing myself to sit here and stare at all the things that aren't getting done, I give myself permission. And this works at this stage in my life because I have a teenager and I recognize that, okay? This did not work in the same way when I had a little... When I turtled when Rory was younger, it would be to pull out the pullout bed and we would put on Disney movies and get um, what are those snack cracker mill things? Baby coochie boards. (laughs) Uh, We would get those out and have just and make popcorn and juice boxes for me, water. And we would just curl up on the daybed together and watch movies together all day just for survival. We have some beautiful, tender memories from that at this point in time. I just go up and I've got special soft textures in my blankets, things that bring me comfort and coziness that make me feel loved and cared for. And Corey comes and tucks me in and I stay curled up in bed and I turtle. And then I poke my head out and I come down and I have to have things in my life to help force me to poke my head out like this podcast. And I did not have something set up for today, partly because I wasn't sure I have episodes that I could use. (laughs) Let me say that, but I had not designated one for today because as I saw myself moving into this depressive state, I knew that I might need today's podcast to help me pull my turtle head out. And I was right. So this is me poking my head out and sharing a little bit of this journey that I'm on and the things that I deal with as I fight to, this is why, truly why it is so important to me to live my life intentionally, because I don't, I don't know how many days I have. I don't know how much time I have, and that's accurate for all of us. But what I do know is that if I don't very carefully make sure that I have safety nets in place and that I have healthy relationships and plans and that I'm seeing my therapist and my psychiatrist and taking my daily medication and doing all these things, I won't be here. And that's not the lesson that I want for my child. And it's also not the reality I want for myself. There's still so many things I want to do. There's a whole life I want to live. I'm only 45. I'm just at the beginning. And I know if you're younger, that may make you giggle, but really, 45 is such a young age for how much is available in this life and on and what we're capable of and what we get to do and it's okay to have dreams and goals and to move for them. And I'm learning that sometimes my depression shows up in a big way when I start moving forward onto those big dream paths because as a kid, I didn't have the safety to dream. I didn't know. Excuse me. I did not know when the rug was going to get pulled out from under me on. You know, the happiness that I was feeling at home or. Or what it's actually I came across this letter. that I wrote to a therapist that my family was sent to at one point and I thought that they were going to have to keep going back. Cause you think you get turned into CPS and they won't just have the kids go to therapist once, but they got sent in through child. They got sent in through LDS social services in Utah. And I just, that's a whole other big fat thing that I could talk about all day. Huh? Um, but Anyway, I came across this piece of it. I wanted to read this. So I'd been talking about um, how my dad didn't get physical very often with me. Um, he had with, I, anyway. I'm going to start here. It says my dad didn't get physical very often, but when he did, look out! When I was ten, I tried to run away because I didn't want to do the dishes. This is like typical kid antics. I was I was such a silly kid, but anyway, uh, my dad caught me as I was trying to get over a six foot chain link fence. He hurt my arms dragging me home and spanked me hard ten times. I knew I deserved it. It breaks my heart right there, but I remember most his face all angry and red and feeling it with each spanking my mom used to hurt me so much worse than that for not doing the dishes and I hated doing the dishes we didn't have a dishwasher there were like seven kids in the family and you had to do a batch of dishes by yourself it was no fun I'd put it off as long as I could sometimes for days I'd get all the dishes in the meantime as well and I remember I'd fall asleep on the kitchen floor my mom would kick me awake. Once she pulled me up by my hair, and that's when I started saving up money to go live with grandma. I was 10. The saving money up was what kept me going for a long time. I don't think anyone knows about that. One day, I found out how much a bus ticket from Raymond, New Mexico to Salt Lake would be, and I was crushed. I went and spent all of my money on penny candies. There was no way I could ever save that much. That is the last time I ever really remember dreaming. Sad. was only 10 I had kind of forgotten about that but it really just kind of circled back to how I start getting these dreams and ideas and the ways I can move forward with it and there's this big piece of me that feels like there's going to be some huge daunting overwhelming thing that won't allow for that to happen and it's It's buried deep in the trauma in me. And I think that coming across this letter is good right now because it helps me find that 10-year-old little girl to be able to show her all the dreams and goals that I have accomplished in my life and that it's okay for us to let go of that fear that is holding me back from moving forward with the next phases of dreams and goals that I do have. Anyway, it's kind of, it's been heavy. It's been a big one. I, um, depression is real. It can be, it can be scary, but the more educated we are about what it is and what it isn't, and the things that we can do to work to mitigate the impact both on ourselves and on those who we love, um, it takes the fear out of it. It takes the fear away from it. I am not afraid that I am going to take my life by suicide one day because I have education around that. I know the things that I can do before it gets to that point. I know people to talk to before it gets to that point. I know what happens to the people left behind if I were to choose that out. And it's not a path I'm going to go down because I do continue to educate myself and I do continue to like when something's no longer working to serve me to fight through the depression or those things, then I release that tool and I find new tools to help me. And so just like with any disease, when there's new understanding and new education that comes up and new science that becomes available, then we have more to fight it with and a big component of that for mental health is us destigmatizing it stop turning it into this big nameless scary thing and accept that yeah it it has a name and it is scary it can be scary but it doesn't have to be overwhelmingly scary because there is information out there there are ways to get help and there are people that we can lean to and have for support and do what's necessary to, you know, fight the worst days of it, whether it's turtling in like I do and shutting everything out for a couple of days and then re-emerging when things are okay. Or for other people, it's, you know, I'm we're going to talk to some ultra um, marathon, they're not marathon, ultra runners. We're going to talk to people who have turned to hobbies or have taken the legacy of someone that they've lost and turned it into a ripple effect that goes out with healing and joy instead of just focusing on the disease and the negative impact that it has. So I hope you'll join me this next month um, as we talk more about education around mental health and as we talk about depression awareness, thanks for joining me. And I hope to see you next time. It's a packed life. Oh, do, 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 do. Do, 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 how do I end? Here we go.